tonight. Tonight is our fourth session on economics, and it's come time to talk about work and the relationship of work to God's economy and work to our own economic lives and how we can bring all of these things together. Let's start by praying. Father, thank you so much for your great love toward us and for calling us to be in your kingdom and for making a way for us to come into your kingdom through such great sacrifice. Thank you, God, that your kingdom is about all of life. We want to walk in your ways, and we want to delight in your will. Help us, Lord. Help us to see things that we haven't seen before about our city and our neighborhoods and our houses and our churches Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. In Christ's name, amen. So tonight, we're going to talk about, like I said, money and work. And to start doing that, I want to ask a very basic question. Why do we work? So, think about this from our teenagers' perspective. Some of them, maybe, are sick and tired of being asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? Or where do you want to go to college? Or what do you want to major in? This can be a really frustrating question. Some of you can't remember college, so, because else. But, (laughs) no. But it can be overwhelming. And then you get in college, and then it really gets, the pressure really turns up. And I think what we're going to talk about tonight can give some relief and some guidance uh, to people, to teenagers and to college students, but it can also help all of us reorient. You see, I think the most basic question is not what do you want to do, but why do you work? What is the purpose of work? Now, fortunately, God helps us massively on this question. If you brought along a Bible, find Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And notice verse 28. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather, instead of stealing, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, right here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, we find a way of thinking about work that is different 
than our consumer capitalist society teaches us to think about work. It's different in three ways. Why do we work? Three reasons in Ephesians 4.28. This is a summary of all of the things God has to say about work in a very compact statement. We work, number one, to contribute something good to our community. Number two, to provide for ourselves and if you're married, your family. And number three, to share with those in need. So first of all, the reason to work is to contribute, to do something good for your community, for the world, for your neighborhood. Stealing is work. It could be very hard work, but it's not good work. There are lots of ways you can make a lot of money, but just because something makes money doesn't mean it's good work. Now, this is really helpful, teenagers. Not all work is good. The first criteria of work is not does it make mad stacks of money, but does it bless the world? Does your work bless your neighbor? Does it provide something good for your community? So instead of thinking about what am I going to do, the starting place is what is something good that needs doing? From designing hospitals to sweeping hospital floors, from marine biology to building bridges, from writing a song to working on a car engine, good work Part of what it means for us to do good work is to participate with Jesus in this world that he loves so much. And when we work, when we do something that helps the world, that blesses the world, when we do this, we are, in words of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, putting on Christ. We're taking up our task as image bearers. So, teenagers, college students... When it comes to thinking, what am I going to do when I grow up? Start here. Start by asking not what makes a lot of money, but instead ask what makes a lot of good. What's a good thing to do? What can I do for this world, for my city, for my neighbors? Second, again, Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. A second reason we work is to provide for yourself, for your family. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. God tells us to work hard so that we are dependent on no one. We need to do everything in our power to find work that provides everything we need so that we are not dependent on others. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, we're told, listen to this. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So if a person is able to work but is unwilling to go for it, that's bad. If we are not willing to labor enough to provide for ourselves, we should not receive the gifts of welfare, the help of others. And others should be willing for us to starve. Now, that's tough love. In short, work is good. People ought to work if they can. And if you're able to work, but you refuse to work enough to provide for yourself, it's a sin. Even if your welfare system compensates for it, and you're able to make it. The normal way for us to provide for ourselves is not handouts. It is not welfare. It is work. Now, 
There are all kinds of questions that come to mind when I, when I use this kind of language. And please stay with me. We've got to mark out the normal framework for work. In a minute, we're going to deal with some of the biggest challenges to this framework. So please trust me. I know we need more nuance than I'm giving right now. But we need to recognize the general issues. The normal way for us to contribute to the world... The normal way for us to provide for ourselves is work. Number three, going back to our verse, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. So work is to contribute, it's to provide. Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So in addition to contributing and providing, we work in order to have enough to share. So if a normal work week gets you enough to provide and it's legitimate work that contributes, work more so that you can share. Each of these are essential. It's not good enough to be something, be doing something that contributes if it's not providing and if it's not providing enough to share. It's also not doing It's not good enough to make a lot of money so that you're generous if what you're doing isn't good for the world. All three of these. Now, what happens when somebody wants to work but can't find work? See, I think that in a typical white evangelical church, we hone in on that word willing to work. Ah, There it is. Let's let all the people who aren't willing to work hear about this. But what about those who are willing to work, but they can't find work that provides enough? What happens, for example, if we take the verse literally? What happens to the thieves who get out of jail in Harrisonburg? Let's not even interpret the passage. (laughs) Let's just take a thief. And let's say a thief in Harrisonburg gets out of jail. And let's say that he wasn't a Christian. Although there have been plenty of Christian thieves. I'm sure the statistics are out there that we steal as much as anybody else. But let's just, in this fiction person that we're thinking about, suppose a person gets out of jail and they become a Christian and they read this verse and they read, let the thief no longer steal. And they're like, oh, that's me. Okay, so i got to find new employment. All right, I was planning to go back to the family business. But instead, I'm going to strike out on my own and stop stealing. Can an ex-felon in our city make enough money? How about in our country? What about in our state? Do you know? Can someone who gets out of jail and wants to start doing good work to provide for themselves and to share with the community... Can they find work that'll do that? Here's the deal. In Harrisonburg, this is not a theoretical question. Let's look at some numbers. There are currently 2.3 million people in prisons or jails in the United States. That means for every 100,000 people residing in the U.S., approximately 698 of them are behind bars. Now, is that good or is that bad? How do we understand these numbers? Well, first of all, it's helpful to know that this is a much higher percentage 
than throughout almost all of the 20th century. For example, prior to the 1970s, the number of inmates in state and federal prisons consistently hovered around 110 people per 100,000. It's 400% higher than that now. 400%. For the last four decades, the United States has engaged in a globally unprecedented experiment to to make every part of our criminal justice system more expansive and more punitive. And the result is our default response to crime in America is now incarceration at a rate far higher than any country in the world. Any country. In fact... In the U.S., we lock up more people per capita than every single nation in the world, other than ourselves. And when it comes to Virginia, our per capita lockup rate is 500 times higher than the closest nation. And this is developed and undeveloped, highly authoritarian nations, democratic nations, What does this have to do with our topic for tonight? Well, here's the deal. The unemployment rate for ex-felons in their first year out of incarceration. Remember, we're taking the Bible seriously. Let the thief get good work. So can our society, can that actually happen? The unemployment rate for ex-felons in their first year out of incarceration. Recently, the most recent statistic I could find for unemployment your first year, if you're a felon out of jail, 75%. 75 percent of thieves in America that have been convicted of a felony could not obey this verse. In one multi-city study done in 2007 and 2008, 60 percent of employers said they probably would not or they definitely would not hire someone with a criminal record. Now, I'm not saying that it's necessarily a malicious decision on the part of that particular business. There are all sorts of complex issues with regard to insurance and liability and infrastructure and education. I'm not talking about motive. I'm just talking about there's this this verse cannot be lived out in our country, in our state, in our city. If you are incarcerated, when you get out of jail, the initial average negative impact on your wages is 10 to 20%. And then the rate of your wage growth as time goes by reduces by an additional 30%. In fact, in one study of ex-inmates, as they moved forward, once they got out of prison, as time went by for the average ex-inmate, their wages decreased. And yes, again, we've got to remember there are multiple complicated factors for all of these statistics. But, the, but our addiction in America to incarceration and its impact on a person's wages is something that if we're going to take economics seriously, we've got to take that seriously. If we're going to read Ephesians 4.28, that's a great place to start. Okay, can a thief do that? But it's not only former offenders who are struggling to make enough money in our nation, our state, our city. It's crucial to recognize that folks with criminal records are not the only ones who struggle uniquely to find good work 
that's enough to provide for their family and enough left over to share. Minorities, those whom our education system has failed, people with disabilities, the Native American population, people who grow up in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty. All of these are categories of people who we have reams of statistics that are saying they cannot find jobs that pay wages high enough to allow them to achieve anything like economic stability. For example, in one recent survey, it was found that the exact same resume was 50% more likely to receive a call back from the potential employer if the name on the resume was obviously a white person, Brendan, versus a black person, Jamal. Exact same resume, blind study, 50% difference. And in another study, African-American applicants with no criminal record were offered jobs at a rate as low as white people with felonies. This is our nation. This is our state. In other words, not only those who commit injustice against society, like convicted felons, struggle to find work, but get this, those against whom society is unjust have a hard time finding work. Back in 2013, 40% of all work in the United States, all jobs, were in temporary contract or non-traditional employment. You see, after the 2008 recession, yes, we are at a historic low unemployment rate. But there are three categories when they count unemployment. Those who want a job and have a job, that's employed. Those who want a job and don't have a job, that's unemployed. But those who aren't even looking for a job is at its highest level among men in prime working ages than it's ever been in the United States. So our historic low unemployment rate isn't calculating all of those who've just given up looking for a job. It's at something like 27 or 30 percent. You see, after the 2008 recession, a significant portion of the jobs that have come back have been in low-wage sectors. So yeah, we've had job growth. But it's not, the jobs that came back were not the jobs that got lost. And so a recent study done of Harrisonburg, if you don't know about this study, I, I encourage you to, to get a hold of it. Um, it's 300 pages long. It's called Alice. Asset limited, income constrained, but employed. So they have a limited amount of assets. They don't have enough income, but they are employed. So they're, they're calculated in our employed figures. In this study, yes, Harrisonburg's unemployment rate is good. It's low. 3.5% right now in Harrisonburg. But our underemployment rate is very high. 26% of the residents of Harrisonburg, and this doesn't include the college students, 26% live at or below poverty. 26%. Here's where it gets terrible. 39 more percent live below the threshold of what it takes to support and sustain an economically viable household. 65% of our city lives below the threshold of what it takes 
to support and sustain an economically viable household. So let me summarize the larger point for those who get lost in statistics or can think of all the reasons that my statistics might be naive or something. Here's my larger point. The economic and social systems of our world are broken in ways that often put the marginalized at particular disadvantage. And look around this room. I'm not talking about you. When it comes to work, in a world that is broken by the fall, we must recognize that some, not all, but some struggle with unemployment or underemployment, at least in part because they've been sinned against or because they work within a broken and unjust economic system. And yes, there are people that don't want to work. There's a particular businessman in, my church, in our church um, who encounters this quite often. He has really good jobs. And he has a hard time finding people willing to take them. That's definitely an issue. But that cannot cause us to lose sight of the fact that there are enough people in our city for whom the biggest problem is not that they do not want to work. It's that they can't find good work. Now, at this point, we need to be very careful. Because there are definitely big picture systemic issues involved in how to deal with this problem I've been trying to name. How to help people contribute to their community and provide for themselves. And oftentimes, some of us can jump right straight to the issue of markets or governments. How can the market solve this problem? And how can the government solve this problem? Maybe get out of the market or maybe get into the market, depending on uh, what color you are at the voting booth, red or blue. But for the rest of tonight, I don't want to talk about the political answer. I don't want to talk about the way Democrats want to respond through statism or the way Republicans want to be liberal in their market economics but conservative in the morality, right? Both are liberal, Republicans and Democrats. Republicans are market liberals. Uh, Democrats are morality liberals, right? Republicans want government to stay out of the market and it to be free, um, but they oftentimes want the government to regulate morality. <laughs> Democrats are the opposite, right? Government get involved in the market, but, but, do, but don't tell me what I can do with my body or with marriage or things like that. We're both living off of modern liberalism. It's flip sides of the same coin. You just, we're picking which, where we're applying it. But tonight, I don't want to deal with the political response to this because the Bible gives a really creative response to issues of poverty through work not based on politics, but it talks to us about what we can do through our own jobs, our own churches, and our own houses. So if you brought along a copy of the Bible, find Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. And let's start in verse 19. Now, as you're finding this, I want to introduce it. We're about to read a line 
out of Yahweh's HR manual for the business firms in Israel. When Yahweh wrote the HR manual for his chosen people, he had a very strange employee policy that affected every Israelite firm. Deuteronomy 24 verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So here's the deal. In the Old Testament, God required Israelite landowners to leave the edges of their fields unharvested so that the most vulnerable people in the land could harvest the stuff in the edges and the stuff that they overlooked. God wouldn't have gone for a really efficient combine. He would have required an inefficient combine that couldn't get every single thing. And once we remember that Israel was an agrarian economy in which the family farm was the family business, we can see just how radical this commandment was. Imagine what this law required for Israel, Israelite landowners. After each small business owner invested his capital in his business and worked his field, he was ready to gather the fruits of his labor. And even though he had taken responsibility for the work and the investment, he wasn't allowed to get all the profit. Instead, God called him to create opportunities for work for the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, and the poor by leaving some of his profit in the field. Now, we're not Middle Eastern farmers in an agrarian society back in the Bronze Age. So there's serious differences between our community and the community being addressed here. And we can't do a one-to-one correlation. But what we can do is we can learn to think from these gleaning laws into our own lives. We can treat the gleaning laws not as a mandate but as a paradigm. And when we do that, it will challenge the 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 typical economic logic of our society where it seems far more practical for business owners our approach to the poor is maximize profit gather every last scrap of your profit and then either voluntarily give or if we're more leftist redistribute the profit through taxes but both are doing the same thing In the Old Testament, the gleaning laws give us three challenges to our kind of gut response to unemployment and underemployment. The first challenge, if we're going to use the gleaning laws as a paradigm and and try to think creatively about Harrisonburg and this community, the first challenge is this. The gleaning laws did not give a handout They gave a job. They created work for the unemployed and the underemployed. Work that required those people to work. Right? You leave the harvest in the field. There's a long road from a sheaf of wheat to a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. 
Now, too often today, charity for the poor overlooks and even discourages work. I'm sure all of us have heard the serious critique of our government-run safety nets that can undermine the dignity of the poor, diminish their capacity, and create unhealthy dependence. Three big problems with handouts. They undermine dignity, they diminish capacity, and they create unhealthy dependency. But the truth is, Our government is not the only aid agency guilty of those flaws. The church is very guilty of that kind of charity. Number two, a second way that the gleaning laws, if we use them as a paradigm, help us to think about our city, our unemployment, and our underemployment is that the gleaning laws required Israelite business owners to create work in a particular way. By not maximizing profit. By leaving some of the profit on the table. You see, God cared more about every poor person in Israel being able to work than he did about any particular business owner's right to maximize profit. Do you see how this challenges both the left and the right in our political environment? In God's kingdom, what ensured that each person had Access to enough work was not a robust economy, nor was it a redistributionist government policy. It was neither free market surplus nor redistribution through taxes. Make no mistake about it, unless these Israelite farmers continue to be profitable, there would be nothing for them to eat. There would be nothing for the poor to glean. God is not against profit. But a critical point is this. We learn from the gleaning laws that maximum profit cannot be the goal of business. And it can't be the goal of a teenager's yard mowing business. Or babysitting business. Or the way you run your house. The best deal. I mean, we have been... Amazon makes me look for the best deal. 50 years ago, there was a whole web of relationship between me and the person I was buying a product from, and I cared for his children as much as he cared for my children, and it was in my best interest that he stayed open in business, and it was in his best interest that I got a good deal. And, and, and you never went into that thinking only about the monetary value at stake. The, the whole economic transaction was embedded in, in the whole life that you shared together. Number three. A third way that the gleaning laws function as a paradigm and help us to think about the underemployment in Harrisonburg is that they made each and every family the place where economic justice happened. Stop looking to government First, look to your own place where you live. In our last two sessions, we touched on some of the places in the Old Testament where God definitely called Israel to tithe to a centralized system of charity that provided relief to the poor. But in the gleaning laws, we see that in addition to that, God also called for work, a work-based system that occurred on each and every Israelite farm, 
in each and every Israelite home. Simply put, it's neither giving to charity nor creating opportunities in our business. It's both and. God calls his people to a local response. To create local opportunities for the poor and the unemployed and the underemployed of our city so that they can provide enough for themselves. 65% of our city can't do that. And the solution has to start with us thinking about it. Now, if you've ever paid someone to do something, whether it's your little sister, to do your chores, or your parent, you paid somebody to babysit for you, or do yard work for you, or you paid a mechanic to fix your car, or you're a business owner with employees and you pay them to do work for you, here are some important questions. Do I have a habit of squeezing all the profit from my proverbial field? Have I treated people who work for me as labor cost to be controlled rather than as humans to be cared for? Have I failed to treat, to treat people who work for me or, or people who make the stuff I buy? Have I failed to treat these people with the dignity that belongs to them as image bearers of God? See, one of the darknesses of our local economy is that when I buy something and I have no idea where it came from. I'm off the hook on caring where it came from. Am I willing to buy stuff that was made by people who are mistreated? Now, let me just stop for a second. There is no way for a middle-class person in America to be consistent on the answer to that question with integrity. It's not an all or nothing. It's where you start somewhere where you eat into some of your vacations, where you eat into some of your extra spending money, where you spend a little more than you can spend in order to gain some ground on justice economically. Have I assumed, here's another question, <coughs> have I assumed that the only reason people couldn't find work was due to laziness? Or a bad choice when they were 22 years old. And now that's just what it's like to live if you're committed to crime. <clears throat> Many people in the church in America have bought into an economic system in which we do not consider wages a moral issue. What you pay the person who mows the grass for you is a moral issue. And if you can't be faithful in that, don't get all uppity-schnuppity about what big business is paying its employees. If you negotiate for the cheapest price you can get away with when it comes to the people who spend your little bit of money, don't get upset with industry that just does the same thing you do. See, many of us are accustomed to thinking on big levels about economic immorality, but it flows all the way down to your house and my house and what Janelle and I pay babysitters and what we hire somebody to do and to our children when they try to talk each other into doing their chores. 
we have to talk about not what can I hire this for, but what is the value of this work? What is this worth? That's number one. People in America, many Christians have bought into this economic system where we start first from the barter, from the, the, the dickering kind of mindset instead of what's the value of this work, and we don't think wages are moral. And secondly, many Christians in America have bought into an economic system in which we do not consider the availability of work for the marginalized a moral issue. But it's a moral issue. Who is responsible for the availability of good work that's enough to provide for the families and enough to create leftover? Who's responsible for that in Harrisonburg? God would say the church. It starts with us. In God's economic wisdom, our assets, our profits, our income are not ours to handle as we desire. They are gifts from God that come from the obligation to leave profit in the field in order to create space for others to work. Now, what does it look like for God's people to leave profits in the field in order to create opportunities for others to work? Well, let's think about this in three categories, okay? How can we put this into practice? I feel terrible. What do I do about this? Okay, three areas. How are we going to do it in our church? What are some ideas about how we can do it in our houses, the places where we live, whether you're a college student living in a dorm or a really big family with five kids living on Franklin Street? And how can we do this in our businesses, the places where we work, the businesses that we have um, relationships with. All right, I'm going to start with business. And let me say, uh, what I'm going to talk about now is how can business bend its economics toward the underemployed? Now, first of all, there's a number of people in this room who know way more about business than I do. I'm going to share some examples from some Christians who have found creative ways to bend business toward the poor while still taking profits seriously. And maybe none of these ideas work for any businesses in our church or in our community, but maybe they can just give you something to disagree with and to think of how you could do um, your own way of doing this. Uh, I'm going to start by talking about an engineering firm, Cascade Engineering. It's a, it's a large company. They, they um, have many, many hundreds of employees. And this engineering firm, owned by a Christian, uh, became brokenhearted over these types of statistics I've gone over about people not being able, certain categories of people, not being able to get enough money. And so the owner of this company decided they were, he was going to use his capital, his influence to do to help some. And um, over the last decade or so, they've helped more than 800 people move off of welfare into a career within the company. And to do this, what they did, they started by educating their entire management team on the realities rather than the stereotypes of the working poor and the barriers they faced. And they provide in-house training to the new hirees who don't know how to work. They provide a social worker on site to help these employees work through common problems like transportation and childcare. 
I'm going to tell you about another company a little bit, Barnhart Crane and Rigging. They've figured out how they can partner with local nonprofits to bring ex-felons to work. Now, a crane company has massive liability issues. Here's what they did. They worked really, really hard to say, where can we bring ex-felons into this place? How can we train them? Nobody else in our community seems to be doing it. And what can we do to fix this? They did some amazing things. But I'm going to actually jump to another, a more fun one. I want to tell you, uh, this is very hard for me to pronounce. Brett J. Orchards. B-R-O-E-T-J-E. Does anybody know this company? Brett J. One of the largest, most successful, privately owned orchards in America. Um, they, re- they saw the toll that's put on the children of seasonal agricultural workers. And so what they did was they decided to change the model. And they decided that they were going to create full-time, year-round employment for the majority of their employees. And then they built a preschool to deal with child wellness. Now, this is a very serious business. They take profit very seriously. But one of the things they said, they said, yeah, we've got to make money or we're going to shut our doors. But because of their commitment to Jesus, they decided to look for ways to care, to care for and create opportunities for their workers. And they decided to lower their profits, to not maximize their profits. I think this company resisted, I think maybe it's one of the companies I saw that resisted going public so that they could own that issue instead of having to fulfill the shareholders. Here's an example. In 2006, they faced a major decision when hail wiped out 70% of their apples. Insurance would pay only if they agreed to do no more harvesting for the season. But if they did that, they had to lay off their employees. Now, this would have recouped some of the loss. It would have put hundreds of workers out of jobs. So the Brett J. family decided to keep their workers and to keep picking the fruit and to let the insurance company keep its money and the company did not lay off a single employee and still managed to break even that season. And they considered that good enough that year. When it came to technology, they faced a similar sort of issue. They had to figure out how to make technological changes without having to lay off a massively undereducated workforce. So in the end, they, they upgraded their technology, but they chose a slightly less efficient capital investment that enabled them to not lay off anybody and, in fact, to hire 35 new employees that year. So there's many examples of this where you can find traditional businesses still aiming at profit but deciding you can leave some of the profit on the table. There's another type of business, though, called the social enterprise movement. This is a, a massive movement around the United States and the world that combines the social mission of a nonprofit 
with the market-driven approach of a business, typically what happens is a bunch of recent college graduates with lots of naivete and zeal partner up with some older businessmen and women who know the reality, and they come together, and the, the young naivete say, how can we do good? And the business people say, well, you got to make a profit to do good. And then they bring all of this together, and you can look up. There's some really exciting ways that this is happening. Um, socialenterprise.us. There's fascinating stories about this. YouTube, a guy named Justin Bean, B-E-E-N-E. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, a young African-American who got tired of people in his neighborhood getting killed, high crime neighborhood, and he started a social enterprise business where they do good, but they, they don't just rely on donations, they actually turn a profit. I want to tell you about a guy named David Dunavant a guy in Memphis, a friend of my friend, because it makes me think about some special issues in our church. David Dunavant had a son on the autism spectrum. Do you know that with a certain level of mental health disability, you can't hold down a full-time job? It's really, really hard. This guy, David Dunavant, was meeting with his pastor. And his pastor offered him some life-altering advice. He told David, I think you need to find a way to be an advocate for young people on the autism spectrum. I think you need to find a way to create meaningful work and purpose. David Dunavant in 2016 launched Give Good. You can Google this, www.give, or go on the internet, givegoodco.com, givegoodco.com. It's a registered benefit corporation, a B Corps, and they sell toffee and health energy bars. They hire millennials on the autism spectrum. Now, millennials on the autism spectrum, their unemployment rate right now in America is 84%. If you are in your 20s and you have autism, 84% unemployment. Give Good provides an excellent product. Remember, good work is only good if it does good for if it does something good. They provide an excellent product while empowering adults who are typically marginalized in the workforce. Within their first 12 months, they hired six part-time workers. And they got their products in 20 stores across Memphis. That's, that's wonderful. Who's going to do that in Harrisonburg? Some ideas for your workplace. Maybe you don't own your workplace, but maybe you've gotten to a place in life where you have influence to some level. Here's some questions. Do you have influence at your work? How could your workplace and your coworkers bend your business or your workplace toward the marginalized? Perhaps you could partner with a nonprofit to hire marginalized job seekers. Now, by marginalized, just to be clear, I'm talking about the long-term unemployed, people with disabilities, people with criminal records, those with low educations, those who may require more on-the-job training than you typically can fund. Can you pay them more than the market requires? 
Maybe you can work with a nonprofit to outsource some of your work to a nonprofit that knows how to work with these marginalized job seekers. Can you help your workplace create a paid internship or an apprenticeship for youth? An eight-week paid summer jobs program for disadvantaged teens in Chicago resulted in a 43% decrease in juvenile delinquency in that neighborhood over an 18-month period. Many, many businesses can find ways to welcome a teen or two into their workforce. Do you have enough influence at the place where you work to allow, to push for a change, to allow for people with criminal records to access at least some jobs, to provide more on-the-job training to allow the undereducated and lower-skilled workers to access work in your company? Can you start a social enterprise? Most social enterprises require a team of people, young whippersnappers who don't think money matters, and entrepreneurial Experienced people who know that it does. What would happen if all the millennial zeal in our church, in Harrisonburg, coming out of JMU and EMU and Bridgewater, combined with the seasoned business people? This would be wonderful. The leaning, gleaning laws aren't just insight for business, however. We also need to learn how to leave profit in the field as a church. See, this is the dark side of frugal as a virtue. If you let frugality get away with you, it's just another word for stinginess. Like there is a way of being really frugal, but doesn't leave any profit. It maximizes all the profit right into a savings account. How can we do this at church? One of the things that a church has a remarkable opportunity to do is to find ways that it can hire people to do work who can't work full-time, underemployed and unemployed. But there's, there's a strong caveat here. Think about a church. A church is this remarkable place where you can, you can know people who have needs and you can offer them opportunity to work. And... and you know, a thing that some of us heard this summer and has really challenged me, my dad will think less of me if I hire somebody to mow my yard. I mean, generally speaking. I come from that kind of working class environment where you don't hire people to fix the, the washing machine. You figure it out. And you don't hire people to mow your yard. That's what the wealthy people do. But we sure didn't do that. See, part of leaving some profit on the table for a middle-class person might be violating your middle-class work ethic. Yeah, you can't really afford this. Yeah, you could mow your yard yourself. But let me think about this. What would happen if 10 families in our church decided they would be willing to have someone cut their grass or clean their home twice a month? We could provide a job for somebody every working day of the year. That's a way we would be leaving some of our profit on the table. Now, here's a strong caveat, though. When you approach somebody that you think needs some extra money, it is far better to say, not, hey, 
Do you want to mow my yard? I'll pay you. It's far better to say, is there any skill you've, you, you've got that can become a side hustle, <laughs> that can earn some money on the side when things are tight? Do you have any skill? And if they name one, um, what if you then looked and found a way you can meet it? Uh, there was one particular church that, that decided to do this kind of thing. And they had a, a large immigrant population in their church. And so they had this kind of rush of a bunch of middle class and upper class people going to immigrants and asking them to mow their yard. And then they had a problem. This particular church, the immigrants who were willing to do hard work came and told the pastor, whenever I ask a white person in our church and we talk about mowing their yard, they fight me for the best price. And it ended up dehumanizing them. Because the people felt like they are doing a good job at giving like a handout, right? Um, see, we've got to be really careful. And we've got to learn how to do this sort of thing. You can, we can ask people that we recognize might be underemployed. What sort of work have you enjoyed doing in the past to make ends meet? And then figuring out if we can create those opportunities. I think one of the things our church needs to do when we finally develop a diaconate is our diaconate needs to kind of come up with a list of people who have access to work and people who need work, and we can begin to put these things together and help each other and help our community. At your house, what can you do at your house? You can realize that your house, your apartment, is an economic engine. And you can be willing to leave some of your bank account in the field by somehow, some way, not giving a handout necessarily, but creating a work opportunity. Now look, this is really messy stuff. And some of us are super clumsy. And we're going to try to go down this road. And we're going to fall flat on our face. And we're going to humiliate people. This is hard. Thankfully, we've got people like Katrina Dito in our church who know what it's like to work in this very messy area. Leanne Wickline, she knows what it's like to work in this very messy There are social workers in our church. We need to get so good at this, so good at this, that we not only take seriously our rector's discretionary fund, where our church gave almost $70,000 last year. That's a way that we give and we help people. But we also need to start investing in this level, not just aid, but also in creating work opportunities. And we need to stop either pushing on the government or on the market. And we need to take our local place seriously. 